Welcome to the State Bar of Texas podcast, your monthly source for conversations and curated content to improve your law practice with your host, Rocky Deer. Hi, and welcome to the State Bar of Texas podcast. You know, I once met a law professor who opined that the law is anthropomorphic. That had me scratching my head, primarily because I didn't know what anthropomorphic meant. But once I looked it up, though, I found out the statement to be rather profound. By the way, anthropomorphic means, quote, described or thought of as having a human form or human attributes. Taking that concept to today's landscape, in the midst of the COVID-19 pandemic, I envisioned the law wearing a face mask and gloves while avoiding all human contact in a desperate and furtive attempt to find hand sanitizer and disinfectant wipes. This is in stark contrast to the law we all knew before the pandemic, a law that was markedly personal, with in-person hearings, trials conducted in front of a jury, negotiations taking place across a table. You get the idea. As of this recording, the vast majority of courthouses across the United States are closed. Tales abound of hearings being conducted remotely in some courts, but the pace and cadence of the court system has changed and slowed for the time being. Most, if not all, lawyers are wondering what this means for the future of litigation and the future of law practice. David Slayton might have some ideas on that. He's been working in the judicial branch for nearly 20 years, assisting with court management in state and federal courts across Texas. David currently serves as the administrative director for the Texas Office of Court Administration and the executive director of the Texas Judicial Council, positions he has held since 2012. Now, I can't promise that David has all the answers, but he can certainly give us the right questions to ask. So with that, David, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for being here. Thanks, Rocky. It's really good to be here. I appreciate the opportunity to have a discussion with you today. Absolutely. Now, look, let's 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 start with some with some basics for the uninitiated. What what is court administration? And so what do you what do you do every day? Yeah, that's a question my uh, wife and kids always ask me as well. You know, what (laughs) what is it you do? My kids used to say that my job was to go to meetings and travel. And so uh, most people don't really know what court administration is. But basically, we are people who are court administrators are generally the people that are not seen by the litigants, the, the lawyers or the public and are behind the scenes trying to make everything run smoothly. So, you know, whether it's making policy recommendations, dealing with budgetary issues, personnel issues or technology, those are all the types of things that we're working on every day. So you're, you're the backstage crew and you're the, the management and the promoters to put this in concert parlance. Right. Sometimes we, are, we wear, even wear black shirts, you know, just to make sure no one can see us. But no, we're, we're back, <laughs> backstage trying to keep everything running smoothly. And the best part is if no one ever sees us, then we're probably doing our job well. If we're seen and, and things are going wrong and we're out having to explain that, we've probably not done as good a job as we hope we would have done. Well, you know, that's that's why this this podcast is is not visual because people are much happier when they don't see me. So, yes, you know, right. I, I, I'm with you. I'm with you. We're kindred spirits. Now, what got you interested in court administration? I've yet to meet a court administrator who said that when they when they were a kid and said when they grow up, they want to be a court administrator. It seems like most of us have gotten into this field by somewhat accident. And my uh, story is no different. I, during college, was looking for a job and I had a friend who was a deputy district clerk chief deputy district clerk in Lubbock County. And she said, you know, you can come and file documents in the basement of the courthouse and we'll pay you minimum wage. And a minimum wage sounded good at that point because I needed a job. And so I, I jumped in and so literally started in the basement of a courthouse filing documents and then have just worked my way through the court system, whether it be state courts or federal courts over the last uh, 20 years and really love what I do. But it's uh, it's been a journey throughout the court system and I've been happy to learn as I've gone along the way. 
Minimum wage in the basement of the courthouse. That must have been a conversation starter at the frat parties. <laughs> right, exactly. <yeah. laughs> so what, how many documents did you file today? It was really exciting stuff. And it actually, it actually made my job whenever I moved to this position. One of my happiest days was signing the electronic filing contract. Actually, it's a, a really funny story is the day that the Supreme Court of Texas mandated electronic filing in the courts of Texas was the exact same day I started filing documents in the basement of a courthouse many years earlier. So I sort of felt that was uh, kind of interesting that I'd been filing all these paper documents and then the court had said no more paper documents. So, so it, was, it was on the anniversary. It was on the anniversary of you starting that job. Exact anniversary of the day I started that job. Pretty, pretty wild. Wow. Okay. I guess, I guess they figured, David, it, enough is enough. <laughs> no more fouling. That's right. right. That's right. So look, let, let me address the woolly mammoth in the room for most lawyers. When are courts reopening? Do you have any idea? Yeah. So we actually just issued guidance last night, May 4th. to On all Star the Wars Day. May the yes, 4th be with you. Yes, okay. That's right. We had to figure out a good day to, to distract people from watching Star Wars. But basically issued guidance to them last night to, to talk about June post-June 1st. So as of right now and for the last several weeks, we've told courts they couldn't have any uh, non-essential in-person hearings th- until June 1st. And so that's that's the day when we're planning on courts being able to begin having in-person hearings again with a couple of caveats, which we can talk about today. Sure, but, you know, please. The key is to, to make sure that that everyone is safe, you know, and um, mm-hmm. so the goal will be that we will continue doing as many remote proceedings as we can so that if it's if it makes sense uh, in the case and there's no barriers, say the litigants or witnesses can't uh, join remotely, then we'll do it remotely just to kind of keep that process underway to reduce the you know number of people coming to a courthouse. But in those types of cases where it doesn't work out or that's not appropriate, then we're going to be starting to let people come back together with several restrictions after June 1st. So it's going to be it's going to be the next installment of Star Wars. It'll be Return of the JD. That's right, <laughs> Return of the JD. I play there on our May the Fourth. Be with you. Issues. You know, look, we, we, this is this is why they they pay me what they pay me to do this, right? Which which is free, by the way. So you get what you, you get what you pay for. So exactly. now, when we say June first, what's that? First of all, what is that based off of? And secondly, you know, we see reports in the media saying that there's going to be more waves. We've not we've not really flattened the curve yet you know, this is just the beginning. So how did we pick June 1st is the first part of the question. The second part is, how does that compare with what other courts and other jurisdictions in the United States are doing? We have been consulting with the public health officials for the state since early March and trying to help them guide us through every step of the way as to when we were, when we needed to begin to close things down, when we needed to, in a sense, prohibit in-person hearings that weren't essential so as we've been looking at bringing folks back together, we have been in consultation with the medical professionals. And, you know, as of right now, I think they are comfortable and we're comfortable that we can do this again on June 1st. And so that's really the date that we worked with them on choosing. And that's the date that they felt was was comfortable. Obviously, if we see, you know, a major spike come and other issues that come up that are different than what we're expecting right now, you know, we'll have to look at that. But I think right now we feel pretty comfortable after having had that conversation with them. With regard to the other courts around the country, I think, you know, it depends on where you're at in the country as to what's going on. You know, the New York court system is an example, obviously, sort of ground central, ground zero for the pandemic. We've seen, you know, they they shut their court system down almost completely. They even quit accepting filings. They Oh, even electronic? Have, you can't even do electronic filings. They had no filings coming in. Wow. 
Uh, they, don't, they don't have mandatory electronic filing. So obviously they were getting a lot of paper filings. And so they were concerned about that. So they, they shut right. that down. And for a matter of, I don't, they actually still haven't opened up the ability for parties to file documents in their court system. So new cases are on hold, everything's on hold. And they just started having remote hearings about a week ago. So, you know, obviously when you look at what they're planning, their time frame is still weeks and weeks and weeks off. Other courts, uh, maybe they were not hit quite as, hard as we as as we were or New York was, you know, they've been able to they're looking at starting up maybe even a little bit earlier. So it just kind of really depends on the situation on the ground as to when um, they're actually getting operational again. Talk for a second about criminal trials, because, you know, certainly during this whole phase when courts have been shut down, we still got, you know, a speedy trial requirement for defendants. So if you've got a defendant who's entitled to have a jury trial, but you're in the middle of a pandemic, how have the courts been addressing that? And I don't practice criminal law, so I, I'm not as familiar with that. Yeah, unfortunately, one of the most difficult things to, to do during the pandemic is a jury trial. Our courts in Texas have actually been able to hold every other type of proceeding that exists besides a jury trial. Sure. Uh, and we've prohibited those since March. Obviously, the biggest issue we have is how do you convene the panel together to pick right. the jury trial? And so, we, especially with criminal trials, that's obviously a big situ- a big concern because they have a right to a jury trial. They have a right under the U.S. Constitution to a speedy trial. And so, for the most part, uh, judges have been working with criminal defense lawyers and defendants about, you know, the timing and looking at where individuals who are in jail might be entitled to bail safely to st- in a way that can still protect the public. And uh, But that is really one of the big issues that's facing us is the need to recommence jury trials, primarily, I mean, for everything, but primarily for criminal jury trials. So this whole time then, say since March, have criminal jury trials pretty much not been taking place? There, as far as I know, and I'm I'm engaged at the national level on these issues too, and there's not been a criminal jury trial in the country since March uh, Mm -hmm. on any, any type of proceeding. There was an attempt last week in Ohio for a judge to have a criminal jury trial and you can go read about it, but it did not go very well. They were in the midst of trying to pick a jury. Uh, the defendant passed out uh, oh. during the midst of Vordire, and it turns out that they think he may have coronavirus. The defense attorney wow. had been exposed to the virus and was and knew that and had been directed to quarantine for 14 days, but yet still was in the courthouse with uh, trying to pick the jury. And so, you know, I mean, the situation is difficult, and but up at this point, really no no jurisdiction in the country, maybe even the world, is having jury trials. Wow. Okay. So let's let's talk for a second about th- th- this. is all very incredible. It's very fascinating about how. So, I mean, in your job, you're you're seeing this firsthand, trying to thread the needle, if you will, between the right to a jury trial and then, you know, trying to keep people safe at the same time. Let's let's move away from jury trials for a second. Let's talk about. He said the other types of hearings that can be conducted remotely. I've seen articles. There's been talk about you know Zoom, Teams, other remote remote platforms being used. How widespread is that? And do you think courts courts can use this to sort of is this going to be an ongoing feature from now on? Is this part of the new normal? You know these sort of you know remote platforms. You touched on it earlier, but let's kind of dive a little bit more into that. Yeah. So when we started looking at this issue in March, you know, one of the things that we were, you know, the Supreme Court and the Court of Criminal Appeals and our office were really concerned about was, you know, I mean, we're in the midst of complete chaos throughout our country. And the need the the need of the courts to still 
be there operational and be some sort of stability in the midst of this pandemic was really important. And we knew that, you know, basically we could do this, uh, at least in many proceedings uh, remotely. And so even though we were allowing only emergency hearings and essential hearings in person to the individuals who are involved in cases that might be categorized as non-essential, those matters are still emergencies or essential for them. And so we really wanted to make sure that we had the opportunity for those people to continue to function and have their day in court. So on March the 24th, uh, our state launched a remote proceedings platform. We Our office provided to all judges in the state licenses to, to Zoom for hearings. And so our judges have just embraced that in ways that were quite literally I would have never expected. You know, in five and a half weeks of, of having Zoom proceedings, the judges of our state have had over 40,000 hearings through Zoom. We've had over 180,000 participants in those hearings, over 60,000 hours of hearings. It's just really remarkable. I think what we'll see, you know, in the immediate future, after June 1st even, we're still going to be seeing remote proceedings being used that way. Uh, But I think even, you know, long term, I think we could see some courts using these type of remote proceedings because I think the judges, the attorneys, the litigants, everyone has really seen the value uh, that can be held, you know, at least in some cases and, and some matters of being able to do that remotely. So I think it's here to stay, but it's certainly been a huge benefit to us during the pandemic. I mean, quite frankly, if we wouldn't have had, you know, the ability to do remote proceedings during the pandemic, I can't imagine what the backlog would be like. I mean, we, you know, we've had 40,000 hearings. Mm-hmm. So those 40,000 hearings are going to have to occur at some point. And so sure. if we let those stack up and the ones behind them stack up, then obviously when we actually get back to the ability to start operating on a more normal basis, then um, the the backlog would be overwhelming and quite frankly, would perhaps take years and years and years to dig out of. So, you know, we're really pleased that we've been able to do that, whether it's defendants, you know, getting their day in court uh, in the criminal cases to either plead guilty or or make their case for uh, why they shouldn't have their probation revoked or whatever it is so that they can get out of jail or move on about their lives, or if it's a domestic violence protective order case, or it's even a civil, civil bench trial. I mean, we've seen matters in every type of case and every type of proceeding. You mentioned a second ago about bench trials, civil bench trials. Now, and this kind of raises an interesting question. I don't know if this has come up yet, but if it's a bench trial, then the judge becomes the fact finder, right? And part of the fact finding is is to assess the credibility of each witness. Yes. And part of that is looking at their demeanor. You know, are they shifting in their seats? You know, what's you're you're trying to assess not just what they say, but how they appear and sort of what their what their nonverbal cues are when they're testifying. Has doing this remotely through something like Zoom has that impacted the fact finding at all? Or you know, do we anticipate that there's going to be challenges to fact finding when it was done through a remote platform? You know, where you're just basically seeing a person's head, you're not seeing the rest of them. Again, we've had 40,000 hearings. We have over 1,300 judges who've been holding remote hearings. And, you know, I've been checking in with them on these type of issues. And I think, you know, what the judges are reporting is, you know, they're seeing people really close in in the face and they're able to watch their, (laughs) you know, watch their eyes and watch their mouth, maybe even in ways that they weren't able to before. And so, you know, while it's a little bit different than what they may be used to, I think 
what most judges have found is that they are able to, you know, judge the credibility in ways that are similar to what they were able to before. Obviously, it's something every judge has to take into account as they as they look at judging credibility. And obviously, as we look at jury trials, you know, to the degree some of those witnesses are appearing remotely, we'll have to consider the same thing. But, you know, I think what at least so far judges have indicated to me, they've not felt like this has been a disadvantage to judging the credibility. You know, I mean, quite frankly, judges have, have in the past done telephone hearings where witnesses are appearing by telephone. Obviously, they True, can't right. watch them. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, quite frankly, if, if, a, if a witness is able to be on video, it's, a, it's actually even better than obviously a telephone. Not quite the same as having them in person, we understand, but at least it gives them the ability to take a look and try to judge their credibility. Aside from Zoom, is there is there some other forms of technology that courts are using during this time? I don't necessarily mean for video conferences, but even other aspects of the court process. Are there, you know, aside from Zoom, is there are there other technology tools or even non-technology tools that the courts are using to kind of adapt to this new normal? Yeah, you know, I mean, I mean, obviously there's the very simple, I just mentioned telephone, but, you know, our platform allows people to appear by telephone. So we have folks who don't have maybe the the same level of access to technology are still able to appear that way. The courts are also using, think about it, when everybody's remote, how do you deal with evidence, uh, which mm-hmm. used to be handed over in the courtroom. And so the courts have, have learned how to be able to get the evidence, whether that's through having the, the parties or attorneys email it to them in advance or upload mm-hmm. it to a Dropbox or Google Drive or Box or one of those type of uh, technologies. Those have all been been used. And then you know, the other one, probably one of the most interesting ones, I think, uh, and quite frankly, was more difficult for judges to get used to, is the public has a right to observe court proceedings and almost every type of proceeding. Mm-hmm. So whenever you're doing everything remotely or, you know, the judges in the courtroom, everybody else is remote, but no one, no member of the public can come to the courthouse, then we've got to provide a way for the public to watch it. And so we've been streaming our court proceedings live on YouTube. So the public has had a, a view into the courthouse that they probably never had before. It's uh, it is really real court TV, and so that's that's another thing that, that they've used. So uh, it's been just been. I mean, I'm really really proud of the Texas judiciary for just embracing this and saying we're going to do whatever it takes to make sure people can have their day in court. Now, you know, it's taken a lot of learning and a lot of adjusting and just trying things out, but it's just. They've done a really good job all across the state at all different court levels. And I'm just really proud of all of the judiciary. It sounds like you guys had to had to adapt very quickly to something just kind of snuck up on us. It sounds like and correct me if I'm wrong, but it sounds like there was there was no playbook for this. There was no nobody envisioned that this something could happen that would effectively shut down the courts back in March. I mean, was this was this all new ground or was there already was there already something in play where somebody said, well, this could happen one day, so let's be prepared? Well, you know, it's sort of like everything. Um, you know, we try to be prepared. Uh, the Supreme Court formed a, a task force a number of years ago that was to ensure the judiciary's readiness in times of emergency. Mm. And so that 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 task force worked on issues like this, but it was, you know, obviously focused on things like hurricanes and fires and, sure. you know, but there was a pandemic piece of that because there was a thought that, you know, this could happen. And then even last summer at the national level, the there was a conference held for courts in Nebraska that was just on pandemic preparedness and Texas had a team there. So mm. we were at least had some knowledge, but I don't think any of us ever really expected 
this um, or prepared right. for this. So we were able to take some of those things that we had learned from, but we, no, there was no rule book. There was no playbook. And the chief justice and I were having a conversation. And this has been an unusual time because, you know, you, you have to make decisions without all the information. And you have to make decisions with information that's changing, quite frankly, even by the minute or by the hour. So what Mm -hmm. you thought this morning was the right thing to do by this afternoon, you may have different information that is changing. And then the other thing I think that's been interesting for, you know, the judiciary generally, historically, we look at precedent. We look at how things have done. We're we're averse to any risk. We want to make sure that we get it right (laughs) the first time. And quite frankly, in this pandemic Sometimes that's not been what we've been able to do. Sometimes we've had to say, we're going to move. We may make mistakes, but we'll adjust. Obviously, we've got to protect against the big major mistakes and obviously not impacting people's due process or constitutional rights. But on other things, you know, when we started doing remote hearings, we literally made that decision in about five days to go from nothing to uh, everybody using remote hearings. I don't know how many months or years that would have taken in a non-pandemic world. Uh, mm-hmm. But we just had to make the decision, move forward. And literally the first guidance we gave to the judges was, you just got to try this out and work it out. I mean, that's just a weird thing for us to have to tell because that's not what we would normally do. But that's what we <laughs> have to do in this situation. And you get to tell judges to work it out. They're always telling the lawyers, work it out. You got a discovery dispute, work it out. And now you yeah. get to tell the judges, work it out. So Yeah, that was a, it was unusual. I mean, the Office of Court Administration, we've generally tried to be a, a resource <laughs> to the judges, but it's generally... Sure kind of giving them all the information they need to be able to do it and just kind of helping them understand it. And in this one, we were saying, help us learn. I mean, the first week that we did this, I contacted about 10 judges in the state and said, here's a license, go go try it out and tell us what we need to tell everybody what to do. It's been a little bit uncomfortable, but again, you know, it's worked out remarkably well. And the judges have been so great to share with each other and post things on Twitter and send us, you know, just yesterday, we got a, a document from one of the judges said, Here's a way that we can tell the parties even more clearly how to get their audio synced up in Zoom. I mean, it's just mm. been, they've been helping each other. It's been a, a really, as someone said, this is a lemonade out of lemons. So we've, we've really seen that happen. Tell the lawyers to make sure they wear suits and and pants <laughs> just in case they got to stand up. So <laughs> yes. if, if, the judge, if the judge has you stand up in the, you know, for the, uh, when the judge leaves or something, I don't know. Uh, yeah, you might want to be thinking about that. I mean, there was actually, you know, if you look at our website, we have guidance for judges about and, and for lawyers and others about appearance and what they're wearing and things, because that was an issue that was raised really early on. Of Right. You know, I mean, I, I saw a proceeding <laughs> where one of the attorneys was appearing with a baseball cap turned around backwards and a T-shirt that was, you know, anyway, it was it was not what you would typically see an attorney wearing in court. But you're, you're so not had, supposed to do that? Yeah, we had to remind everybody, this is court still. It's just online. I mean, there's no right. difference than what we were doing before. But I think that was a, you know, people were used to being on Zoom or you know, whatever <laughs> platform it was just to have fun. And um, so it was a, a bit of a transition there. It was, it was interesting, actually. You said earlier that that Zoom licenses were given out to all the judges in the state. So does that mean this is being... Is this being used even in in rural areas or maybe in smaller courthouses? And then I wonder how that plays out because I don't know what internet connectivity would be in some of the some of the more far flung parts of Texas versus in the major metro areas. Yeah, it's being used everywhere: municipal courts in small areas, large areas, district courts, the Supreme Court, and had oral arguments. The Court of Criminal Appeals will soon be having oral arguments online. I mean, it's just you know, everyone's using it and. 
Interestingly enough, while there have been some connectivity issues, I think most courts have found a way to deal with that. So maybe in the rural areas, they can't do it from their, the judges can't do it from their home, but they go to the courthouse uh, where there's mm. better internet. Or I've not heard of a, of a single judge who said, I can't, I can't get it to work. I've heard them say, I can't get to work from my house. And so they've gone somewhere else to do it. And we've even not really had any issues, despite the fact that we are greatly concerned about people having access to the proceedings. So whether it's the parties or a witness or whatever, we've been worried about that, but we've actually not heard of any real cases where that's been an issue. Um, you know, maybe the party has to go to their lawyer's office to log on to a device there or something like that. But we've been able to make it work with very little exception, if any. I've not actually heard of any cases where they say we couldn't do it because the parties couldn't connect. Well, and and this next question or this next concern is not really a small town concern. It This, this happens everywhere, even in the big cities. And that's you know, there are some lawyers who still, they're still used to you know, paper. They still use fax machines. You know, they, they still send, send correspondence on letterhead via certified mail, as opposed to just relying on email. So has there been a learning curve for those lawyers? Have they had to, have they had to just kind of buck up and learn? Or is there some kind of accommodation that's been put in place for those that don't know yet? Yeah, you know, the good thing for us is it's some of the just more fortunate things as you know, we started doing mandatory electronic filing in all civil cases six years ago. Hmm. And then even criminal cases are all mandatory electronic filing. So attorneys have l- had to learn to get used to technology in one way or another. That's not to say that appearing by Zoom in a hearing is not something completely unique because, you know, I, I remember the first oral argument that the Supreme Court had, I, you know, there was concern about how are the lawyers going to, they're, they're not used to, this is not their typical advocacy. So I think there's been a learning curve, but I think that the attorneys seem to have adjusted really well to this. And, you know, the state bar and a number of other sections of the bar have put on, you know, Zoom training sessions and webinars and CLEs, and it's gone really well to help them kind of get adjusted and used to how to uh, do it. And again, you know, maybe maybe the judge, the one thing that's unique, it's been interesting, is you if you watch one of these hearings, you'll see the judge say, no, you see that button down there in the middle? Click that <laughs> one, the green one. That's how you share your screen. And so, I mean, the judges have had to work, you know, work right. them through some of the things or the clerks have done so. But I think for the most part, it seems like people have adjusted. We chose this platform because we felt it was the most user-friendly. That was really important to us when we were looking. So whether it's the judge or the lawyer or the litigants or witnesses or whatever, that they would be able to get in and not struggle. And some of the other platforms we looked at, we felt like maybe weren't quite as user-friendly as this one. That's why we went with it. There's been some talk about security issues with Zoom. Yeah. And and I understand this is a public platform. So if somebody Zoom bombs you, as they call it, and just shows up, it's it's not it's not fatal because, well, at the end of the day, it's a public platform. But right. you know, can you talk a little bit about the security and to what extent that's been either alleviated or dealt with? Yeah, that was a big issue for us from the beginning, even before everybody else got interested about it. We looked mm-hmm. at that right up front. I mean, one thing to note is what we're doing on here are public proceedings. So, sure. you know, we're not doing you know, national security type stuff. But there are sometimes things that are confidential that we obviously wouldn't want someone interrupting or even just generally interrupting court proceedings. And so we looked at the security settings from the very beginning. And the good thing was 
by us having a paid account right from the beginning. We have an enterprise level account. That's the top mm-hmm. level account you can get. And so we have access to all the security features. And we went through with our IT uh, department and looked at every single setting and thought about it from a security perspective and and made those account settings uh, defaults for everyone's account. So every judge that the, from the very first day they got it had those in place. We enabled the waiting room feature so that people can't just get into a meeting without a judge admitting them. Sure. Although we've reminded the judges that, you know, let's just say you accidentally or whatever, you admit someone to a, to a court proceeding that's not supposed to be there and then they strip down and take off all their clothes. You know, the thought is someone could have done that in a physical courtroom. And right. what would you have done? You would have had them removed. Uh, same thing here. If someone comes in and does something inappropriate right. in the quote unquote online courtroom, then you just take care of it just like you would have in the physical courtroom. But we have not seen any security concerns that have been talked about in the public that we don't feel like we've already addressed. And so um, at least as of right now, we're not um, we're not concerned about them affecting the court's proceedings. I suppose physical security is much better now because everything's on Zoom. You're not worried about an outburst from from a party or or somebody sitting in the gallery who right. decides to to do something crazy. So I guess there's 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 a bright side to it as well. You'd said earlier and I think you quoted was it 40,000 hearings have been done over Zoom yeah, at, at least. So we know there've been um, and this number is going up by almost sure. a thousand every day at this sure. point. We we know there's been over fifteen thousand separate Zoom meetings held by judges in the last uh, five and a half weeks. You know, just conservative estimates are three to four hearings per meeting. I know I know judge, some judges are holding fifty and even as many as eighty hearings in one meeting. So you know, anyway, we're we're conservatively estimating at least forty thousand hearings, but it's probably even higher than that. Well, the, the, the question I have is, how does that compare to pre-March numbers? So if it's forty thousand over the over these five weeks, what would you have expected in a five-week period? prior to all this? I mean, are, is, is, is the number starting to catch up to, quote, normal court volumes? Or, you know, are, are we still at a lower volume than we once were? I would say that we're still lower than what we mm. were. But it's interesting. We are increasing the number of meetings or proceedings held via Zoom by about 150 on average, 150 a week, 700 last week, 550 the week before that, 400 a week before that. And so what we're seeing is the a ramp curve. up that is getting... You know, we're getting more and more pe- more and more judges on, more and more volume going through it. And so I don't think we're back to normal. But I, I saw a survey the other day that said that they thought judges were operating at 25 percent of volume. I don't think that's the case in Texas. I think we're probably closer in the 50, 60, 70 percent volume, I guess, is what I would think. I mean, like I said, judges are doing everything that they could do in person remotely now. There are probably a few exceptions here and there where for some reason that hearing just isn't appropriate for uh, an online procedure. But, you know, um, I think that that volume's came back up. The place where I would say the volume has been lower are in our municipal courts and our justice courts mm. where everybody is, most everybody is representing themselves and, mm. you know, just trying to get that, get get them notice of where to come and all that has just been a little bit slower. Child support cases are one of the enforcement cases are one of those places where you got to get the people notice of where to show up. And so it just sure. takes a little bit of time. But we're seeing that really pick up and um, we'll see, we'll, we'll be getting there uh you know, as, as it continues, you know, maybe even by the, by the time we start back in person, we'll have, we'll be back closer to, to um, normal volume. And, and if I could, one, one final question, and that's, you know, here in Texas, we're, we're proud, you know, we're, we're proud of, of our state and what we do. And I think, you know, certainly speaking on behalf of the state bar of Texas, we've always been a leader amongst other state bars and, and the Texas court system has been 
oftentimes the envy of other court systems just with the way we do things. So kind of with that backdrop, in terms of Texas's response to COVID-19, you know, have, have we been taking our cues from other states? Have we been kind of leading the charge? You know, how do the Texas courts kind of compare nationally with the way this has been handled? And of course, I understand New York and some other states, you know, they've had to completely shut down because of their volumes and exactly, you know, just how badly they've been hammered by this by this pandemic. But taking states that are kind of at Texas's level in terms of exposure to COVID-19, how do we stack up? You know, you're asking born and raised, born and raised Texas to compliment Texas, so that's not a hard. Uh, it's a softball question, man. You're, yeah. you're supposed to, yeah. You, know, you got a grand slam here, so yeah. I, I'm on the national, the conference of chief justices, which are the chief justices of every state and the state court administrators. My colleagues in all the states and territories, we formed the pandemic rapid response team, and I'm one of the six members on that. Chief Justice Hecht is the chair for the chiefs, and so I'm aware of everything that's that's going on in the country from all the different states. And I think I would say without hesitation, Texas is the leader in what's going on in response to the pandemic around the country. And that's not just the Texan enemy coming out. It's really true. If you if you watch the webinars and the materials that have been put out across the country, uh, a lot of states are taking their cues from us. We were the first state to really go live full force with remote hearings. We're the ones leading on the jury trial response, how we're going to get back. We were one of the first states to put out guidance for how to return. As far as volume, no one's, uh, certainly at least among the, well, no one, I would say. I was going to say among the, the large states, but obviously the large states' volume would be bigger. But, you know, you look at California's not holding remote hearings. New York's completely shut down for the most sure. part. They've just started back remote hearings. Florida has just started doing some remote stuff. So we should be proud as Texans, um, not just because we're always proud of ourselves, but <laughs> uh, but because I think our response has been really great. And a lot of the other states have taken the lead from our high courts and, and the orders they've entered. You know, our Supreme Court entered an order suspending uh, eviction proceedings. Um, they weren't the first state to do that, but they were certainly one of the first. And then on consumer debt, I think they may have been the first state to do that, working with the the legal aid providers and the creditors bar and other bar members to come up with a solution that was good for Texans. And uh, you, then you saw a lot of other stations follow right behind us. So anyway, I think we should be proud of the response. And well, we've got we've got a long ways to go. I mean, we've got a lot of work ahead of us, but I'm really proud of what we've done so far. Well, that's, you know, thank you for the pep talk, because I think a lot of us, a lot of us need at this at this time. Now, speaking of time, that is all the time we have for today. David, thank you for being here. Thank you for all of your your hard work, you know, you and your colleagues trying to keep us on track and keep these court systems going. Thank you so much for everything you're doing. I appreciate it. Thanks for letting us talk a little bit about today. And, you know, if anyone has any questions or comments, they can always reach out. We're always looking for any feedback or thoughts. So uh, happy to hear from anybody who may have some of those. How is the best mechanism for reaching you? Yeah, our, I'm sure our legal staff who monitor this email address will be really happy with me for giving <laughs> it out. But we have set up an email address. It's coronavirus at txcourts.gov. So if people have questions or thoughts or issues, that's the place to go. And then they'll get it to the right folks, whoever can answer the question. But coronavirus at txcourts.gov. Awesome. Well, again, David, thank you. And of course, I want to thank you the listeners for tuning in. And before we sign off, just a reminder, please stay safe. Make sure to follow all applicable orders for dealing with COVID-19. And please advise your clients and loved ones to do the same. This situation is changing fluidly. It's changing quickly. So please seek out legal counsel if you have a question. If you like what you heard today, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or your favorite podcast app. Until next time, remember, 
Life's a journey, folks. I'm Rocky Deer, signing off for now. If you'd like more information about today's show, please visit LegalTalkNetwork.com. Go to TexasBar.com slash podcasts. Subscribe via Apple Podcasts and RSS. Find both the State Bar of Texas and Legal Talk Network on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn. Or download the free app from Legal Talk Network in Google Play and iTunes. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, the State Bar of Texas, Legal Talk Network, or their respective officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, or subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer.